This podcast is part of the Sports History Network, your headquarters for the yesteryear of your favorite sport. You can learn more at sportshistorynetwork.com. At times nowadays, we throw around the term fake news. However you describe that term, it could mean something one does not agree with, or perhaps it actually is something that is very far from the truth. In the very early days of the NFL, when it was still called the American Professional Football Association in 1920, the league was populated with teams from much smaller towns than today. So places like Hammond, Indiana, Canton, Ohio, Rock Island, Illinois, and Decatur, Illinois, were among the locations hosting early NFL clubs. The local fans were very loyal, and the neighborhood newspapers were delighted to have their own home team to lavish praise upon, whether or not it was accurate. In particular, we owe a bit of gratitude for those publications since they devoted considerable space in each issue to covering all aspects of their teams. Not only were previews of each game addressed, but post-game reports included extensive coverage and opinions about the just-completed contest, including the inclusion of box scores which identified the participating players. These surviving articles provide insight into the ancient days of the NFL allowing researchers to take a peek in a window that was closed many decades ago. So in this episode of When Football Was Football, we'll discuss a game in 1920 between the Rock Island Independents and the Decatur Staleys that prompted intense passion from both the players and the fans, thus creating what we'll call today the first grudge match in NFL history. More importantly, we're able to pull information from several small-town newspapers to fully understand one of the wackiest situations in that inaugural year of the National Football League, and one that was escalated by a single, single local newsman. So how does a grudge match develop between teams that really had no history and had already played a rather harmless encounter to open the season? On October 17, 1920, the two clubs initially met in Rock Island, with the Staleys capturing a 7-0 victory on a 44-yard run by Jimmy Councilman. The long-scoring run was enabled by an excellent block from the Staleys' Dutch Sternemann near the goal line. Everybody had such a great time after the nice, clean, crisp game that the two teams began quickly negotiating for a rematch. In other words, a lot of people attended the game. Back in 1920, the schedules were not locked in before the season, so in-season game scheduling was quite common. There was, of course, some dickering over the share of gate receipts and location, but the two clubs were looking forward to strong attendance, which would equal a very profitable share of the revenue. The Decatur Herald newspaper pushed loudly for the game to be played in that venue, which seemed logical since the first contest was staged in Rock Island. In addition, the Herald claimed that the October 17th battle just completed was the biggest thing since sliced bread. The paper said no athletic contest in years, not accepting the dempsey Willard fight or the World Series, has stirred local interest, as did the Staley Rock Island football game. From 4 o'clock Sunday afternoon until late in the evening, two of our Herald reporters were busy at the telephone answering calls from fans who wanted to know the score. However, the day slipped by and there was still no agreement on the location of the rematch, which would be held on November 7th. The Decatur Herald again, realizing that seating was limited at the Staley Field, challenged the city of Peoria, Illinois to host the game at the Avery Tractor Field, stating, 
Peoria's businessmen should be interested in the staging of a big game of this caliber, as it will bring hundreds, yes thousands, to Peoria for the battle. What do you say, live wires of Peoria? So finally, after all day discussions in Chicago on November 1st, 1920, the game was scheduled to be played at all places, Douglas Park in Rock Island. Surprisingly, reporter Bruce Copeland of the Rock Island Argus dropped his happy face and began needling the Staley's for some reason in print. He said, the Staley's are cocksure that they can defeat the independents by even a greater score than two weeks ago. They boast that they are the logical contenders for the world's championship by virtue of their victories over the independents and the Chicago Tigers. But that opening salvo was just a jumpstart for Copeland in his column on November 2nd in the Argus as he recounted some discussions from the Chicago meeting. George Trafton, Staley Center, declared that the independents were the softest playing proposition that he had ever opposed. Leave it to Trafton for that. He spreads it on thick. Even Staley's manager George Hellas was a target for Copeland who said, Hallis, suave with noticeable traces of vindictiveness toward any opponent, vowed openly that he was positive his team could defeat the Islanders by at least three touchdowns without his own goal even so much as threatened. Clearly, tensions were building up before the big game, with Copeland's fiery comments and opinions fanning the flames in Rock Island. No one from the Decatur side seemed to contradict the quotations, but Hallis, perhaps feeling a bit uneasy, decided that his team would not spend the night in Rock Island. Hellas wrote in his autobiography that local feelings were against us there in Rock Island because of the money Staley backers had made on our last game. Being cautious, off the field, I made our overnight headquarters at Hotel Davenport in Davenport, Iowa, across the Mississippi River from Rock Island. It was probably a wise decision for Copeland because he continued his unrelenting attack on the Staley's by writing, since defeating Rock Island, the Staley's have done everything in their power to belittle the Independents' grand plane record. They have referred openly to the Islanders as softies, punks, rowdies, small towners, and other epithets equally as distasteful. Still, Copeland encouraged local fans to attend the game and predicted that the two teams would split an enormous purse of $12,000 for their efforts. The night before the game, Hellas recalled that local gamblers showed up at the Hotel Davenport seeking betting action in support of the independents. Even worse, said Hellas, and I quote, they boasted that George Trafton, our best defensive man, would be knocked out of the game in the first quarter. Some even mentioned the name of the Rock Island player, a Mr. Fred Chicken, who would put Trafton on the bench, or worse. Hmm. The Davenport Quad City Times later verified that statement by reporting that Trafton was personally challenged in the Davenport Hotel Saturday evening, and a handful of these birds from Rock Island heckled and razzed him into bets that he would be forced to take time before the end of the first quarter, meaning he'd be knocked out. Trafton bet till his money was gone and went into the game hammer and tongs. Well, the game itself was lackluster, as the two clubs battled to a less than exciting scoreless tie. However, the non-scoring activity on the field disintegrated into a holy mess with fights, unpleasant tackling, unnecessary roughness, and all inspired by the passion of the participants and the rowdiness of the local fans. Fortunately, no injuries were reported when a portion of the bleachers collapsed during the game, 
due to the weight and the movement of the crowd. Trafton was clearly labeled as a villain in this game, and the rumored efforts that the independents were intent on harming him were not unfounded. The Staley Fellowship Journal later noted that, Trafton played a whale of a game, although he was a marked man because of some dizzy sports writer quoting him as saying he would get the Islander players. And Ellis later recalled, Early in the game, the Rock Island hitman, and that would be Mr. Chicken, was carried from the field, knocked out by Trafton, accidentally of course. The Rock Island doctor revived the unfortunate Mr. Chicken, put 19 stitches in his scalp, and a plaster cast around a broken wrist. The Quad City Times added, Trafton took no time out during the game and is said to have personally accounted for injuries to Gunderson, Chicken, Smith, and Nichols. Quad City Times later stated it was when Swede Gunderson was hurt that the Rock Island fans started the hooting and jeering and the game was delayed fully 10 minutes by the howling mob. The play resulted in a 15-yard penalty against the Staleys and play was finally resumed. Well, all of which prompted the betting public of Rock Island to look upon Mr. Trafton with further dismay. Sensing the growing civil unrest, Hallis plotted a quick escape for his star center after the game. Ellis said, the Rock Island fans were extremely upset by the disappearance of Mr. Chicken earlier and the continued aggressive tackling by our George. We foresaw trouble for our George. Fortunately, as the end neared, we had the ball. We devised a play that had George running toward the exit. As a gun fired with the score still 0-0, George went out the gate. We threw him a sweatshirt to hide his numerals. He headed for the bridge in Iowa. A car stopped and carried him safely across the river and the state. In reality, the entire Staley's team was in danger after the game. A crowd of Rock Island supporters surrounded the team as it was leaving the field, and someone tossed an empty bottle in the direction of the players. The Quad City Times reported that, Luckily, the mob scene did not result in a casualty, although a pop bottle was thrown by an irate fan. It crashed through a taxi cab window, narrowly missing a Staley player who was riding in the rear of the machine. Neither the bottle nor the flying glass did any damage. The purpose of the attack was to get trapped in the Staley Center. Meanwhile, there was no mention of any unusual activity surrounding the game in the Chicago papers, but the Staley Fellowship Journal decreed that never in the history of Staley athletics have we ever seen such poor sportsmanship on the part of an organization or its supporters as that of the Rock Island Independents. But there are two sides to every story, and of course the Rock Island Argus was not finished either, barking back with a bold headline stating, Staley's win world's dirt title, and proclaiming, with a foul player like Trafton, the Staley's best gutter champion roaring, roaming the field at large against teams whose ideals are cloaked in nothing but clean sport, the Staley's will soon find the best professional 11s in the country turning their backs on them. Years later, Hallis documented his version of the Rock Island aftermath by stating that our share of the gate was $3,000 in cash. At the hotel, I gave it to Trafton to bring to the train. When asked why he gave the money to Trafton instead of taking the cash himself, Hallis did not hesitate to respond. He said, I knew if we did encounter any nasty Rock Island fans, I would run for the money, but Trafton, oh no, Trafton, he would run for his life. 
Thank you for listening to this episode of When Football Was Football. We're excited about sharing the next episode with you, which will be a special look at some of the key professional games played on Thanksgiving Day and why a game in 1919 may have been the most important professional football contest ever played on that holiday. This podcast is part of the Sports History Network your headquarters for the yesteryear of your favorite sport. You can learn more at sportshistorynetwork.com.